0: welcome to another episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Uh, I'm Zach Loafman and we have Matt Most. The two of us make this up. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Zach? I'm doing well as well. Uh, It's that time of year where I have to put my teacher cap back on and stop being a field biologist, which is the fun part of the year. Not that I don't mind being a teacher, uh, but you know, getting paid to flip rocks and catch crawdads is kind of cool. (laughs) Um, But anyway, uh, yeah, this is our second episode and we have Clint Bartley with us today. Uh, And a little bit, you know, here in a little bit, we'll be getting into a nice conversation with Clint about Asiatic rat snakes and black rat snakes and other colubrids that he keeps. Uh, But before we get into that, there's a couple little housekeeping items we need to do. Uh, On the first episode, Matt and I were so excited to record things that we kind of... Forgot to tell you where you can find us on social media. And obviously you want to go there if you want to keep tabs on what's going on with the podcast because we're going to share when those when our episodes are up and running. So you can find me, Zach lofman at Facebook or on Facebook, and then Dr. Crawdad on Instagram. Um and then Matt, how are you doing?
1: Where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me on Facebook too as well, uh, on our business page for Sarpa And you can also find us on Instagram at Sarpamitra, USA. And occasionally I do post some videos with the Sarpometric Care series on YouTube with Maggie. And between all of those different social media outlets, you can kind of connect with us in multiple different aspects, uh, see what we're actually producing throughout the year and see what we're up to on a day-to-day basis.
0: Yeah, there we go. So we've had, you know, we keep tabs with each other and we've been crazy, crazy, crazy busy. Uh, past couple weeks but we've had a couple developments within our respective collections Um, I had my Japanese rat snake clutch hatch and I tried for four freaking years to get those things to go so that's a pretty big deal for me Um, they're not going anywhere they're all staying uh, with me Uh, the earlier in the week I had a clutch of Boiga sienna green cat-eyed snakes Um, those were hatching on Monday uh, and that's my first time producing those and we still have tons of false water cobras in the incubator i don't know how many eggs are are in there that's for school and grad student projects i think we have about 60 eggs cooking and we've had about 60 eggs hatch so um that and then of course the students projects are rocking and rolling with hognose snakes and corn snakes everything else barons racers the whole kit and caboodle so what's up with you matt on that regard i'm you well yesterday Massive i got collection. to ship you a box <laughs> yes and... you did
1: <laughs> so you want to give the the watchers and viewers a little heads up on what you just added to your collection
0: yes i just added four Ramphiophis, so african beak snakes um don't know the exact species it's not the one with the eye stripe red beaks so I I added... i'm pretty sure those are red spotted beaks. red spotted based beaks. upon yes. what I'm, i was able to look up on them and i'm I'm excited to to work with those. I I have a story with those. We'll talk about in a f- future episode if we were talk talk about Ramphiophis. It's kind of fun. And then there was an added bonus in the in the in the box. One of my faves, uh, tricolored hognose snake was in there as well. So some wonderful rear-fanged colubroids. Um and I'm really looking forward to getting those going and thank you. Thank you, thank you for sending those my way. I also got today um, a pair of thorn scrub rats from Chris Pengshob at Badlands Herp. Uh, I've never actually seen those alive before. I've, I've, of course, being the nerd that I am, I've seen them in field guides. They're in Stebbins, reptiles and uh, amphibians of Western North America. Uh, but damn, those are cool. They're like s- incredibly light, sand-colored, emery-esque rat snake pretty awesome there's also paper that just came out um they were sunk taxonomically and then just recently within the past six months the paper came out that re-elevated them to subspecies status so i'm um, really looking forward to working with those uh, as well so yeah good times with me anything yeah, new for a you a lot of
1: fun to put in those cups oh. just because <laughs> of the nature of how fast those suckers are to put them in a little eight ounce deli cup yeah but other than that uh, hatching out some file snakes, I have two mandarins that were starting to lay while I was walking out the door to go to Michigan today. So uh, nice. hopefully by Friday, come back to some nice clutches there. Um, other than that, you know, we're kind of finishing up the last clutches of corn snakes hatching. And looks like we'll have some cocks eye some poultry hatching too as well in the coming weeks. And um, it's been an exciting year um, across the board. Now the hard part comes is what's staying and what's going just yes. because of space
0: limitations. Yeah, that's always the hard part. I, it it wasn't hard for me to decide to keep the Japanese rat snakes, but everything else, man, rough. So, like, how many holdbacks are you going to have? What, like 40, 50, um, I'm thinking About sixty. Sixty? <laughs> okay, that's that's yeah. a low number for you. <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, last mm-hmm. year held back sixty. This year hold back sixty and just kind of play it through and see, you know, how different projects fluctuate. But, you know, one of the hard parts I think most keepers have in this hobby is trying to maintain holdbacks because mm-hmm. space limitations, but not only that, sometimes we get drifted away in the hobby and we lose track of what our ages of the animals are in our collection even. Um, that's actually been one of the problems I've had over the years and that's why I've held back a large number of animals last year. and as well as this year, and I'm sure Clint will talk about this too in in terms of his keeping skills and also um, holdback skills too as well because as time progresses with breeding animals continuously, you're obviously putting more stress on the animal, and Mm -hmm. it's just one of those things that we need to monitor, especially as keepers, that, and including when you have rarer species, you want to make sure that you have those animals in the future and kind of spread out their bloodlines too, amongst other serious keepers too as well.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, I know with me, the the falsies, they double clutch every time they lay. So my two big breeder girls, they they dropped 60 eggs last year and 60 eggs this year. And I'm damn certain that they're not going to be bred next year. So uh, I have holdbacks that are just coming up to breeding age that'll kind of take their place with next year's breeding, if I even breed them, because I've produced a tremendous number of those things just no, they're very easy to breed. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, in terms of conversation on easy to breed,
1: things like that, um, it's always just the recipe, right? That yes. goes along with it. And obviously in a future episode, I'm sure we'll talk about some of that, too, with the falsies.
0: Yeah, 100%. Yep. So back to the beak snakes and then we'll move on. When I opened the box, the deli cup arrangement was amazing. And I looked at that and thought, how does he still have fingers? <laughs> so <laughs> what was it like putting them? I and mean, then you, you briefly mentioned putting them in a the deli cup. But like the damn dude, that's all I have to say.
1: <laughs> so it's interesting um, just because when I was in grad school, I worked with a lot of venomous, too, as well. And you, I always have treated rear fangs just like mm-hmm. handling a cobra. Um, so even putting those beaks inside those delis was a bit challenging because I did hook them and lead them <sighs> into the cubs. Okay. But looking at the size of the animals, um, and I'm sure once you opened up their containers and they were up to temperature, mm-hmm. they, they were ready to roll um, and get out of that container because mm-hmm. they were packed fairly tightly, yeah. I would imagine still. And one of them is a a very aggressive feeder and <laughs> okay. the minute you open her tub she is out of the tub itself mm-hmm. um so in terms of putting them in because they are sight yes very visually oriented. observational you know and anyone that works with that species or any of the subspecies too as well i mean you'd know that they're just an amazing animal to watch and view in a terrarium setup even Mm -hmm. but the way that they actually collectively watch the actual keeper from their actual enclosure is just amazing in itself
0: yeah no i'm I'm kind of jazzed to be working with them over the next months years however long they're here which is probably gonna be forever because they're totally my kind of critter so thank you one more time yeah and um the
1: tricolor is a hypo tricolor too
0: oh sweet okay you'll have some fun with that yeah that see that is a species i got a lot of experience with um but we will definitely have a tricolor uh, episode i'm lining up a tricolor guest that's gonna it's kind of legendary in colubrid circles uh some people probably know who it is just from that so talking about future episodes. Uh, We had really good feedback from the first episode, so those of you who listened, thank you very much for that. Uh, We have reached out to several uh, well-known people in the Colubrid community and Colubroid community, and uh, several well-known people have actually reached out to us. So uh, the future for the podcast is nothing but bright, and we're really looking forward to uh, proceeding down the road. And on that line of thought, uh, we'll just jump into this. Everybody ready? ready let's Alrighty. go okay <laughs> there we go so our guest tonight is clint bartley of bartley reptiles it makes a whole lot of sense for clint to be our first guest given the relationship that clint and matt have uh, but we're going to be focusing tonight on that relationship but mostly just on all the wonderful work that clint has done as a colubrid breeder um he's a rat snake guy works with some other animals as well uh Asian rats are definitely part of his forte. That's the obvious connection between Clint and Matt. But at the same time, uh, black rat snakes, a somewhat common species that many people in herpetoculture might overlook. Tonight's episode is going to give them a tremendous amount of love, and hopefully people give them a a good solid gander. And as far as North American colubrids go, uh, they're one of the absolute best. Uh, There's localities, there's morphs, there's unique genetic mutations and and and, clint and matt have definitely done quite a bit with that and that's the main you know thrust to the night's conversation so uh yeah so first question for you clint is kind of the standard issue because we are you know ccr colubrid and colubrid radio we're matching and trying to do what npr does for colubrid so can you give us a little bit of your background in reptiles sure
2: absolutely um <clears throat> I think I started like a, a lot of the individuals who have been around for ages and that's you know, caught a snake in the backyard kind of thing. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that started a passion. I, I remember my first snake was a Eastern black king snake that I happened oh, to be cool. six years old. I had it for one day. It bit me. I got scared and <laughs> dropped it, lost it and cried. Not because it bit me, but because I <laughs> lost it you know and and that's uh, that started a passion Mm -hmm. many many years ago uh that was over 30 years at this point and it just continued from there i was very lucky that while my parents were not snake enthusiasts by any means um, they were very supportive of me in that uh, that particular Ah, particular pursuit Um, i think my mother always said that there was a lot worse i could have gotten into you know, so that's kind of how she looked at it to support that passion. Um, over the years, I- I've always enjoyed reptiles really of any kind. Um, I-, I appreciate lizards, appreciate turtles, tortoises, uh, caimans, you-, you name it. But snakes have been it. You know, th- that's the passion. Uh, yep. You know, I've had different geckos, different uh, lizards here and there, but I always end up back to the snakes. Um and it's been all kinds it has been colubrids primarily uh but of course different pythons uh, boas um but as we said i i think all of us that have a broad range of appreciation for the hobby we have a certain sect that we're drawn to (laughs) that we keep coming back to right um and that's certainly me you know when it comes to colubrids when it comes to rat snakes you know in particular they they're my highlights um I will say from the age of eight until now, so we're looking at 30 plus years, there's not been a month I have not had a snake of some sort you know, for, oh. for that long. So um, I think the very first species I ever produced was black rat snakes. Um, <laughs> and that was, I think, at the age of 11, I believe. So yeah, um, lots of time, and lots of experience with a lot of different species
0: so the the black rat snakes then is there a nostalgia element there
2: is that part of why they're there i would (laughs) say that it's um the first so as i said the the eastern black king was the the first snake i ever caught and it, it personally from from the the area i live eastern black kings are my favorite local snake to find just Mm -hmm. love their look. They're the most exciting. They're I don't want to say they're rare by any means, but they're the most rare for me to find, you know, uh, routinely.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, The black rats are extremely common. Now, I'm, I'm going to call them black rats. Because that's (laughs) what I grew up calling them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) They've been we can go with that. (laughs) uh, Technically, I think they're called Midland rats, you know, at this point, or Mm -hmm. uh, so. Black rats are are what we'll call them, uh, in my area, they're not the prettiest. They, um, Mm -hmm. we're in an intergrade area between those and gray, so they're very dirty, but the first snake that I ever kept long-term was a black rat snake. And it was just a few months after that initial capture, um, of that Eastern black king. And so that's where I learned how to take care of a snake. You know, I learned how easily they can escape their cage if not not (laughs) properly um i learned that black rat snake babies will eat lizards that i didn't expect when i attempted to house one with it um you know (laughs) little things like that and and that so i cut my teeth on a baby black rat snake and i've always had an appreciation for them Uh, i mean truthfully they're one of the most gentle species that don't get me wrong, they can have their attitudes. We all know that, but Mm -hmm. they always seem to calm down, you know, after being handled for a while. And it's one of the few that they may put up a a big show, but I could grab a a five foot adult, wild caught adult and the chances of being bit, maybe 20%, you know, one out of five Mm -hmm. would bite me, but four out of five aren't, you know, it's just a really neat species that's extremely underrated.
0: Excellent, excellent, excellent. So, another question for you. This is obvi- an obvious question given the nature of the podcast. So, why colubrids? <sighs> uh, so many different snakes out there. They're, they're, uh, I, we're going to ask this question of everyone. Yeah, so they're, go they're for everything.
2: it. <laughs> I, I mean, that's that's what's so mm-hmm. cool about it is I love that. Okay, for example, the Asians that you know we're into, mm-hmm. they are beautiful naturally. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of these colors to think you would flip a rock and that's what it would look like. You yeah. know, it's not a morph, right? It's that, that beautiful, but I'm not a morph snob either where, you know, I look at some of these yeah. different and while I enjoy albinos, I really prefer other morphs personally because it's, it's yep. a variety of colors and that, uh, uh, and, and that kind of palette's just, just gorgeous to me. So I would say, not only do i love the incredible amount of just visual representation that you see across the mm-hmm. board but also the dynamic of the the different characteristics within the colubrid set um meaning you can go from a leucistic i'll say leucistic but let's say a texas rat snake and that kind of attitude to a suboc a transpecos rat mm-hmm. snake. And I mean, those differences in, we'll call it personality, uh, really demeanor, um, where you can have one that just hates everything. And then another, I mean, for me, like subox are one of the most inquisitive species I've ever kept. You know, they want to follow you Mm -hmm. around when you're moving and just watch you. Um, So that's what I like is there's, I think if you're a hardcore colubrid keeper with a variety, it makes you a a better herpetoculturalist you know as a whole because you have to learn so much more than just this one species or one sect I mean to say the word colubrid it it encompasses so much you know and yes, it's it so does. many that you you'll learn a lot by keeping varieties well, under that flag
1: well that's also part of the issue I think when people get in this discussion of colubrids is a lot of people don't realize Basically, it's a lumping ground for pretty much everything else.
0: Absolutely.
1: But <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, Clint, of, I've never met a, a mean Texas rat snake.
2: Everyone <laughs> never. Not those, you, no one <laughs> <Yeah>. some. <laughs> and so you know, people will say, "Well, how can you tell if it's a Texas rat or a black rat?" Pet it. <laughs> <It'll tell you. laughs> That's
0: yeah. <laughs> It's hanging off your face that came from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> oh. yeah, on that little token, just real quick. I, when I was in college, I went to the Columbus reptile show. It's a monthly show. It's been around forever. And um, I was talking to a guy. And he, I'd never interacted with a Texas rat before. And it was the end of the show. And the guy was like, you want this? It's like, what? And he's like, you want this? He didn't show it to me. It was in a bag. And it just said black rat's snake. I was like, okay. So I... You know, took it home, drove all the way back here to West Liberty because that's where I went to school. And when I opened the bag up, you know, I didn't know what was in the bag. And as I opened the bag, it was flying out. And I was just like, what the hell is this thing? This isn't a black rat snake. And it had the high yellow interstitial spaces and everything. And then I read a little bit about them. i like, oh, yeah, that's definitely from Texas. So, anyway.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I'm still wondering
1: when all of the naming of different common north american species is going to go back to what we were all used to from field
2: guys. what well, we all we'll, want it we'll to see. be again you know? yeah.
0: <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah that's that's a slippery slope because the genes say one thing and the phenotypes say another thing and given the nature of taxonomy you've got morphology people genetics people and yeah but that we're not opening that Pandora box. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no. That's a dedicated no. episode in the future.
2: Yeah. Yeah. for That's, like a, that's right. like a three-part episode. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly.
1: Hey, Clint. Other than the colubrids, I mean, I've been to your house. Mm-hmm. What else encompasses your collection there?
2: Uh, I mean, I also work with a a small group of ball pythons. Um, I, when it comes to them, I, you know, at one point I had a large collection of ball pythons, but I shifted back to colubrids. I tend to always do that. Uh, But I held on to things like the Ultramel morph just because I enjoy that morph of ball python. Uh, So I do little projects uh, with that. Uh, Also, well, I mean, as far as colubrids in general, I mean, we mentioned rat snakes, but I work with a lot of king snakes, um, some corns that... um, or my children that came from came from Matt, um, but I would I'm kind of running through my head now on what I got down there, but that I think would be the extent outside of Calubrid's right now that I work with. Just a handful of these ball python morphs. Uh, there are a few boas at my place as well. They actually belong to another individual. Um, I think at some point boas will be in my future again uh, when when the space says it's okay. <laughs> uh right now space yes. does not say boas are okay. Um but uh yeah that, that would be about the extent of it. Okay very well, and, cool.
1: and, and space obviously is everyone's limitation when they mm-hmm. go through the hobby itself. And I think that sometimes can dictate our our keeping style and our approach to keeping too as well. Um, whether it be caging, racks a uh, combination of both, you know, Clint, do you want to elaborate on your, your keeping skill itself and what how your approach takes forward and precedent in your collection?
2: Yeah, I, I take a little bit of, of both sides there, um, cages and racks, just depending on species. Um, and sometimes I'll, I'll go back and forth with it because learning what the species best um, acclimates to. And, you know, as we've talked in the past, I think a lot of times we, we try to make things cookie cutter and by, we just talking about people in general, um, we try to make things cookie cutter. We try, okay. I read it in the book that 80 degrees for 78 days for, you know what I mean? And and you kind of check all this off and that's not really the case. And sometimes it's not even the case within the same species, you know, certain individuals do better in certain setups. Um, for example, one of the species that, uh, you and I both work with Matt, uh, Prisina, the green bush rat snakes. Um, those are one I am still attempting to crack a higher degree of success with, uh, every year I'll produce at least one, <laughs> at least one, <laughs> but should be producing a lot more than that. All right. Um, and I've, you know, I've, they are successful in a rack system, meaning they eat, they, they live, they breed, they lay. Um, and for me, I think my issue is somewhere in incubation. And so still trying to to work through that, uh, this past year, I moved those to an, uh, arboreal cage and two different sets really. And, um, now I'm working with kind of their cycling, uh, keeping them under UV bulbs, keeping them with a, with a heat source, even though they're, you know, an Asian species, So working with some different things to attempt to get a a higher degree of success, you know, with them, uh, same thing with Karenata moving them. I've got them in racks at the moment, considering moving some of my larger adults, our larger adults to cages, because I feel that I had a, a greater degree of success with some of the big ones in a cage setup. even though when I say a rack we're talking major tubs here that these are in at the moment. Yeah. So they've got a good amount of space. Um, but uh you know, we've noticed that some of the larger carinata they've not produced for a couple of years now. Um and that may be more of a feeding thing instead of a, a cage uh setup. Um may have just gotten too fat, you know, really. <laughs> um and so you know, adjusting some of the feed cycles as well as prey items trying to get a greater degree of mix, a lot more poultry in there uh, to try to slim them down a little bit and see if that makes a difference. But to your original question, you know, I cycle a lot with that, whether it's long cages, whether it's tall cages, whether it's a cage that's going to hold more humidity, whether it's going to, whether it blacks out more sides, uh, certain racks, you know, can give a, a much greater degree of uh, shelter, so to speak, to the animal because they are dark on three sides and, and some species react better to that. So for me, it, it's, it's a little bit of everything. You know, what the species needs, I try to, try to move in that direction. And whether that's reading through books, talking to, to other individuals, you know, getting online, we're, we're not going to know it all. None of us. You know, the, there, there's no Bible on any species, really right? It's yep. Just going to be, this was the best practices for the individual who wrote that book. And so take it, learn from it, but don't be afraid to adapt and try to venture out a little further and see what success you get by making those subtle changes.
1: Well, you know, and it's interesting too. Um, I was talking to a different keeper earlier in the week and it's funny how we organize these aspects of keeping of a rack versus cage, because at the end of the day, it's a box, essentially, <laughs>
2: yeah. you know, um,
1: you- but we look at these different aspects of, you know, lighting, um, heat, humidity, and even though it's a box, you'd be having different success of monitoring humidity in that respective box because of ventilation or, mm-hmm. Um, lack of ventilation even. And it's important to kind of play cues with those boxes to maximize the performance of the animal.
2: Absolutely. You know, you bring up an interesting point that was a big thing for me this particular year, and that's ventilation. Um, Mm -hmm. And it started with, I've had some decent success with Subox over the years. However, I have noticed a higher mortality rate in some of my adults in that particular species. And, you know, you, you read and you hear the the number one cause of death when it comes to a transbacos rat snake, is humidity, 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 you know, it, it needs, um, needs better. And in the, I had them in rack systems and I felt that they were ventilated enough. Um, even using uh, some of the, the commercial rack systems that come with uh, ventilation already pre-made. So I thought the humidity was low enough, but I was like, you know what? I'm, I've got to change something because I continue to have this, this issue, right? And I probably increased my ventilation by 800%. From where it was. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, and that's not an exaggeration. Yeah. I'm, you know, whole crazy on this thing, right? Yeah. And I here I am with my soldering gun, just pop, 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 mm-hmm. pop, you know, for hours. Um, and I did that early in this season. And I have found it to have completely turned the tide on my success with them. I uh, had more clutches of Subox this year. All the adults seem to be doing fantastic um, because babies, no problem, but the adults are where I would start to notice this. And because of that, I got to thinking just about ventilation as a whole for everything, everything I'm working with. And I think that we tend to not want to create so many ventilation holes because we want to hold humidity for some species. But at the same time, I'm thinking, that's probably a little dangerous, because the the less ventilation, the more everything in there is stewing. Right, the more everything mm-hmm. bad for them is growing in that environment. Um, you know, we we may spot clean, but that little piece of feces that is still clinging to that damp piece of uh, um, cypress mulch, you know, the, the bacteria, everything else that's growing yeah. on it. So, um, I actually have gone through and it's a large collection, so I'm not through all of it, but I would say about 75% of um, my racks that don't come pre-ventilated already, I did the same thing to regardless of species where I increased the ventilation a good 800%, <laughs> you know, um, including a lot of the Asian species that we want to keep higher humidity on. The only thing I've changed then after increasing the ventilation was always ensuring that their moist uh, hide box stays moist because, you know, it's mm-hmm. really easy with a large collection to, you know, it'll be okay. or They're not shedding. Okay, I can mist it, you know, next week kind of thing. Um, so making sure that that stayed good and humid, giving them a, an occasional misting maybe once a week just over the entire tub. Uh, light missing of course. But I think that ventilation is something we commonly forget about. We think about the size of the tub, what bedding they're on, and that kind of thing. But just to have clean airflow coming through is is a big deal that most of us skimp on, in my belief.
0: On that that token, I actually have a good example of of where you would think the animal needed humidity, and it led to a death. Um, back in twenty nineteen, I think, or eighteen, is when the infamous West Liberty crypto disaster happened. And at that, at the time that we were dealing with that in one lab, uh, we had some uh, Latiscinctus. Are they broad-banded bamboo rat snakes? Yes, is that yes. A common name. Yes. Okay. Uh, And we had those in a completely different room, like totally separate from the crypto. And they weren't doing great, which was weird because they were doing wonderful. And then they just started to kind of peter away. And then kind of serendipitously, right before we were sending a bunch of snakes to the University of Georgia for pathology that had crypto to confirm we had crypto, the Lada passed. And so I had them in tubs with uh, sphagnum moss and orchid bark substrate that was damp, but not wet. Kind of the classic way many people think you should keep them. And I, I thought, all right, well, we'll just throw them in the box and see why they died, because it could be crypto lurking in this room, too. And all the other pathology came back, of course, as cryptosporidium. But what was really interesting is those Latticinctus had actually died, uh, and they did a complete necropsy of the animal. But they had a, um, a fungus that had basically gotten into their lungs, and had manifested itself and and taken out all the little alveoli, the little structures that you use for oxygen. Hmm. And nobody ever talks about that. And that's totally 100% resultant of lack of ventilation. So we did the same thing you did Clint and bought a soldering iron and made
2: a lot of holes. (laughs) And and that's the kind of thing where in most cases, myself included, if I would have found that animal, I would have just thought it's one of those things, you know, you deal with life, you deal with death. Sometimes you come in and there's just a dead snake. I mean, there's really always a reason, but we just, we don't go through the additional steps to take to find out exactly what happened like you did. So that's interesting because I mean, that probably happens more out there than any of us are aware. It's... Yeah, there may have been something that the snake was carrying internally from birth that just finally, okay, that it ruptured today. You know, it was its time. But mm-hmm. I, I would say my guess is 90% or more of the deaths that we come across that just happen, um, yeah, are something in the, the keeper's error. Yeah.
1: Well, and even with that even being said, you know, sometimes you'll hear keepers talking about respiratory infections and right away they go to treat it with antibiotics Mm. and it's likely not even a respiratory infection. It has to do with lack of humidity or, uh, too much humidity environmental. And really what we're doing is basically creating resistant strains within those animals. So this way, when we go to actually treat for that respiratory infection, it won't be successfully treated. Um, you know, even Clint, I remember when you and I purchased the same racks, my basement at my old house was like a rainforest. It was like <laughs> 70% humidity in there. And I, I kept complaining to Glenn. I'm like, man, I need to like put more ear holes in there. So I got like a 5 <laughs> drill hole and <clears throat> drilling all these brand it, new rags. It, racks it was stuff. so
2: funny because Matt kept saying that to me. He was like, man, it's just, you know, I've yep. got like condensation and all this inside. And I'm thinking man, I'm having like, I'm, I'm dealing with some stuck sheds, you know, here and there. Yeah. I'm like, how are you? I don't get it, man. No, I, I don't yeah. need to drill any more holes in here. <laughs> what are you talking about? But then he, you know, we finally put together that his basement was like over 70%, you know, the humidity level was over 70% in his basement, where in mine, it was 40%. i am like, well, there it is. Yeah. It's raining in your basement, Matt. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm.
0: so, <laughs> There you go. Yeah. There's, there's something about my house. I had a bunch of Asian rats until April or May, but they just didn't. There's something about my setups environmentally. Cause I know my cages are good. My temps are good. Cause other things are thriving, but you know, I just basically threw in the towel because it, something was just off there, but other animals like my dips and these garter snakes I've gotten water snakes and, uh, King snakes they're all like thriving there there was yeah. just something weird when it came to Asiatic rat snakes they just didn't jive I don't know what the hell is going on some bad juju but that 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 speaks to something that I tell the Zeusai students here all the time in fact I told some of them uh, this week is that you like it's the forest through the trees statement you you can't just rinse recycle repeat you've got to learn your space and your quirks and then understand mm-hmm. that your space and your quirks are your space. That may not be somebody else's space. And that one of the things that drives, I'm sure all of us crazy is you see somebody who's asking a question on social media and then somebody flames them and says, this is wrong. This is, you know, blah, blah, blah. You don't know that when you're saying that to that person who's in Texas and you're in Florida, you know, those are even Texas. If you're in East Texas, it's a swamp. If you're in West Texas, it's a desert. You've got completely different background humidity and temperature levels and barometric pressure storm front, all that kind of stuff plays in so it's you know and some of the yeah. things
2: that are wild with that like two two stories i could say you know along with what you just mentioned there about you know kind of your space and what works and what doesn't work <laughs> sometimes even species that you would think have the exact same care and they really do um matt has heard me say this time and time again i can produce cocci like crazy I can produce poultry like crazy. I can produce a lot of like crazy, but I am where Vellante come to die. So that, that, that's, <laughs> I have had the worst luck there you go. with them. I mean, it's, it doesn't matter where I get them. It doesn't matter if I've raised them from babies. You know, I finally have produced one and it's, it's in my house and it's going to mats as soon as I come up there. So <laughs> that thing doesn't die. Um, but I mean, and it's, we're talking about, they've been kept in the same racks as all the other uh, porphyraceus. you know, and, and they're, everything else is fine, but I don't know what I'm doing wrong with them and I cannot figure it out. So uh, I, I've been able to check them off my list as I've produced uh-huh. them. I can, I, that feather is in my cap. Now they can go to Matt and he can play with them he can take care of them <laughs> yeah. I there just killed him for some reason. But and another funny uh, kind of just quirk when it comes to snakes is uh, ball pythons. Uh, a good friend of mine is local as well to me, uh, Brandon Osborne of Osborne Reptiles. He's famous for the urban camo ball python. And uh, he and I, we, we do different projects together as well. And over the years, there have been times one of us has had a ball python that, okay, we're on month four and it's still not eating. You know, why don't you take this over to your place Mm -hmm. and try? And literally it's happened both ways where one of us will leave the other one's house, have this ball python in a bag, go home, put it in a tub, drop a rat in and it eats it immediately. Strikes and does it immediately. So, I mean, it's like, You've got all the same kind of setups and all this but for some reason just moving from one space to another has suddenly kicked it into you know it's more natural instincts so it's it's crazy you know it's, it's wild what we we see out there there's no one size fits all for sure there's no one answer for everybody
0: yep absolutely so you mentioned giving that snake to matt so you guys obviously have a relationship going on. Can you kind of give the or- origin story to how you two started working together? Found yeah, absolutely,
2: yeah. Matt sold <laughs> me sounds like a weird romance
0: wrong. I'm setting up here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, uh, there we go. I would say the, the way Matt and I uh, met was um, I was just getting into Asians. I, I say just, I'd been, I'd had been i would had cox for a couple of years and I was growing that particular um, collection. And Matt had a cock's eye for sale, um, a, a male, or so he thought. Um, and, <laughs> um, so, and Matt lives uh, about three hours away from me. And so we decided to just kind of meet in the middle. And um, so we talked for a good 10, 15, 20 minutes until um, you know, Matt was told he had to leave <laughs> by, by his partner at <laughs> the time there. And, um, then
1: at that we, bar we met at i could spit on the ground and no one had any shame no one looked at me any poorly at <laughs> yeah. that place there you go I <laughs> kind floor? of place <laughs> i don't even know if they had floors in that place to be honest yeah. No, enough yeah.
2: <laughs> but uh uh we we obviously stayed in touch you know because we we had this similar interest and i was growing more and more what i was learning about and wanting out of just asians i mean it was a brand new uh section of this hobby that still to this day is is pretty underrepresented in you know the united states it's it's certainly it's it's grown exponentially from where it was 15 years ago um but still in the grand scheme of things it's it's low it's low Um, and matt is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to asians Mm -hmm. Um, so he was able to introduce me to so much. I was able to bounce questions off of him, um, bought an endless amount of snakes from him, you know, (laughs) over the years now. Mm -hmm. And, um, from that, we, we started to kind of, we, we realized one, we enjoyed each other. You know, we, we kind of had similar goals, similar interest in similar philosophies, which I think was one of the most important pieces for being able to do projects together is just the philosophy on it all, where it wasn't about the money of what we were Mm -hmm. producing. Um, You know, if we made a few bucks, fantastic. But that's not what we were about. Um, We also knew that animals die. It does Mm -hmm. happen, you know, unexpectedly. Um, And sometimes those could be Cheap animals, sometimes they could be expensive animals. You know, it happens, especially with some of what we wanted to work with. Um, <clears throat> as we started doing projects, you know, we're dealing with things that aren't incredibly common and, and there's not a lot of information out there on them. So we were learning as, as we were going with some of this, um, you know, and Matt will be able to talk about some of that too. Um, and eventually, it um, As Matt was obviously helping me learn a lot on the Asian side, um, the, the black rat interest had sparked for me. Uh, there were some mm-hmm. in somewhere in Europe, Matt will be able to remember exactly where some of these morphs were, that I've always liked black rats and I, I felt that there was going to be a wave coming with them looking at the morphs, looking at the direction of the hobby as a whole. I felt it was going to be a great time to jump back into them. I wanted to for, you know, I still, I had some, you know, I, I've never not yeah. had a black rat snake, but it was going to be a good time to really take on some projects when it came to black rat snakes, gotcha. expand it. And so I said something to him and, you know, at first he's kind of thinking, you know, black rat snakes, really? And I'm, you know, Matt, yeah, you know, let's, let's look into this, you know, reach out, let's see about getting some of this sent over here. And, you know, he, he looked at some of the pictures and I think he saw what I saw at that point, that that's going to be a popular animal and it's, it's going to be fun to work with, especially when we start getting it into some of the things that, you know, we already had our hands on over here. Um, So I think that was the first black rat project that Matt and I did together was getting a handful of hypo. Yeah, I think, what
1: was it? The? Yep.
2: Yep. Hypo yeah. Yeah. Hypo. Het Germany. Yeah. We got a, a group. It was a Germany they came from. Uh, we got a group of those sent over. And from there, it kind of exploded for us. I mean, we, we began getting our gotcha. hands on really every black rat morph there is that has been proven out so far. Uh, there's a couple out there that might be proven out this year, you know, we'll see. And, you know, I'm talking to some of the individuals, um, working with them and it, it exploded really for us. Um, I think that not only the amount of animals we had, we got our hands on some that are extremely hard to find right now. Um, brindles, for example, which mm-hmm. is, is, and you hear this story over and over and over from so many i had those in the 90s you know and it's there's so much of that out there and with black rats it's it's very true i had brindles back in the 90s you cannot find them today you know for sale Mm -hmm. Um, so doing that you know we've we've grown we also do carinata together um there's a lot of species that even if it's not a project that we co-own we both have and so we communicate on those quite a bit, Bella yeah. Japanese would be, you know, one of those, but uh, the black rat specifically is, is kind of what catapulted our, you know, our partnership on projects. And it, I mean, it, it's, it's bared some nice fruit for us because just this year, um, through a, a project we set out for, I think three years ago, we were able to produce for the very first time in the world that I know of a hypo calico black rat snake. Um, And I do know for a fact, the first time in the world uh, we created at least two, maybe even three, as I'm looking at them, hypo lavender calico black rat snakes. Um, and we beat the Europeans. That's right. That's right. (laughs) That's what matters, I guess. uh, And that's exciting. I mean, and and what I love about that project is who knows what it's actually going to look like. You know, I I know Mm -hmm. what this baby looks like right now, but it's going to look completely different in six months, in a year, in two years. So things like that are incredibly exciting. Um, and that's, that's really why I think black rats have been such a passion for me, certainly. Um, and you know, I know Matt gets excited about them too. I mean, if you think about it, we're talking about, I'm going to go off on a tangent here when it comes to kind of these and these mutations, yeah. you're talking about one of, if not the most commonly found species in the United States, in, in North America, right? I mean, they're everywhere, all over the place mm-hmm. now, you know, and it's regardless of what you're calling them today, right? <laughs> they're all yeah. over the place. Mm-hmm. And there is such variance in just the way they naturally occur. You, you can oh in yeah. the same area and you're talking everywhere from a jet black snake to brown saddles on a gray background, Mm -hmm. right. in every shade in between. And so what I find, I don't know if the word comical is right, but intriguing and interesting is the most common snake that we come across is one of the most difficult when it comes to identifying morph and what you actually have and are working with that I've ever experienced or encountered. Because that's interesting. It's, you can have, well, and I think a lot of it may come from mislabeling over the years as well. When you're dealing with hypos, and at this point, I feel that there's more than one line, at least two lines of hypos. They're mm-hmm. probably compatible. Um, you're dealing with email. And I think that we're dealing with multiple lines of email. Because if you, you'll hear red line, you'll hear white line, yellow line you know, things like that. And they very well may be completely different lines, but happen to be compatible, or we're just dealing with different localities expressing the AML or the hypo in different ways, because there's different, different amount of pigmentation that comes with that locality. Um, and then of course, as babies, they all look alike. You know, it's (laughs) whether it's hypo, Amel, even chocolate, uh, which we deal with, they're, they're so similar that if you begin crossing and combining these different mutations and traits, if you sell something as a hatchling, you're giving it your best guess a lot of times at what that visual animal truly is. Um, because it may be six months before you can really think about, okay, that does look more like this than that. Um, and then when you get to things like eye pigment as a, you know, determination on, is it, is it hypo? Is it amel Is it, it's, it's incredibly confusing. And I think the waters were muddied long before Matt and I ever got into it. Um, so there are certain Mm -hmm. animals we're still trying to figure out what we have, um, Another example, I know that we've got a pair of at least hypo rusty black rat snakes, but they may be hypo amel rusty black rat snakes, look completely different than anything else. Um, And truthfully, I'm not going to know what the hell those are until we breed them to something else. (laughs) So, um, but it's, it, it is a project that can go on for years and still not fully have all the answers yet. And that kind of excites me. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, on, something so
0: Clint, common, we, on something so mm-hmm.
2: common. On something so
1: common. I remember when Clint the, and I yeah. went down a road. What's oh, that? sorry. Go ahead, Clint. I was going to say we also No, I was going to talk about. about uh, oh, gosh. Now we're just talking over each other. I think we have a delay.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, no, I was going to say even when we started working with the leucistic black rats, and there was the conversation of rusties and leucistics. And then some rusties can produce leucistics, but some
0: can't. And it's like, yeah. how does that work? Yeah. Well, for someone unfamiliar with black rat snakes, mm-hmm. as far as their morphs are concerned, could you do like a a quick rundown of what the different morphs are and what 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 the phenotype is expressed as? Kind of see what I
2: see if I can do this off the top of my head, right? On on what I remember. There you go. So you have calico which is a pattern and color mutation at the same time. It's, it's one of those rare, unlike any other mutation kind of look that you'll ever see. Um, you have hypo, hypomelanistic. And again, I think there may be more than one line of hypo out there. And I'll talk more about that on some other morphs in a second. Uh, you have amel uh, or albino. I know that that's yeah. not technically interchangeable, but in the hobby, it is. <laughs> um, the Then you have things like uh, chocolates, which I actually think is another form of hypo, but not nearly closely related to the common form. Uh, the common form of hypo creates like a orangish red animal, mm. where the chocolate is literally looks like milk chocolate, you know, as, as adults. Uh, but I think even that is still a form of hypo, you know, on the black. Uh, lightning is a brand new morph that uh, matt Whoa. and i have as well um, and that's the original animal was caught in arkansas if i remember right and we got some heads yeah. and visuals from uh the individual who caught the uh, original morph as well as he went and caught some females in the same locality and that's what he started the project with uh scott who you know great guy to chat with too so but the lightning, I mean, it, it, it's not identical by any means, but it looks very similar to the chocolates enough, where that will be a test breeding that we end up doing down the line, uh, to see if one, is it the same thing? Is it compatible? Or is it nothing, you know, not allele at all. Um, but that's, that's a newer morph that is pretty neat out there. Um, lavender, which in itself, Is causing some confusion, I believe in the hobby. (laughs) Um, the original lavender, I I don't have the origin story, but if you find pictures of them, it's adults will be a black rat snake that has almost a purple or lavender undertone, um, in, in the background color. So, I mean, it's enough where you can see that it's different. Um, however, i've been hearing the terms lavender and european lavender thrown around a lot and unless there's two lines that i'm, I'm not familiar with the pictures i'm seeing of what people are calling european lavenders are hypo lavenders and that's a very gotcha. purple snake a purple pinkish snake um, and again that's something if if there's someone who listens to this and wants to correct me on that with origin stories please I'm always up to learning but from the pictures I'm seeing I think there's some confusion and in fact I mean Matt and I could say our lavenders came from Europe (laughs) European line right (laughs) so and and I think that that's actually what's probably happened is some of those have come over because I know that uh uh Iman if I'm saying his name right was, was shipping some of those to others as well and i think that's where that term came from and they actually have a double recessive animal not a single recessive not a a lavender lavender is a single recessive gene in fact this year was the first year we produced visual lavenders that weren't a combination of hypo and that was part of the uh triple head by triple head pairing that we were using that created the hypo lavender calico know we kind of had the whole gamut of um morphs that came out of those two clutches uh just
1: muddying it up right
2: right (laughs) um there is also white sides um the white side of black rat snakes uh rusty's that's going to get us into kind of the lucy talk and so some of this i'll say i know and then i'll give some theory and i'll make sure to, to point out which is which right so there are to my understanding two lines of leucistic black rat snakes there is a recessive Mm -hmm. line that i believe started it almost sounds like the majority of morphs from black rat snakes started in ohio Ohio. that's so many come from ohio uh but there was a recessive gene that came out of ohio and i believe the we would call i guess incomplete dominance um would be Mm a technical term, but in the hobby, CODOM is what everybody likes to call it. Um, There's a leucistic version of that as well. And in that particular line, you have the incomplete dominant um, is called Rusty, which we could kind of call it if we wanted to explain to others as a het leucistic is a Rusty. You know, if we wanted to say it like that, I know that's not accurate, but a rusty is a kind of a lighter brown, washed out black rat snake. And then when you breed a rusty to rusty together, you've got a 25% chance of each egg being a leucistic. And so you have those two different ones. Gotcha. Now, where I think it gets muddy for black rats really as a whole and in, in everything, but specifically leucistics, I think that there have been confusion over the years on the recessive gene leucistic black rat and the recessive gene leucistic texas rat and those have been muddied bred together and i I had you know in the past i've had some that were supposed to be that supposed to be the het leucistic black rats i just wasn't confident enough in it for me to continue with that project because it very well could have been but I just didn't know. And when it comes to our black rats, I want to know that that's what we're working with Mm -hmm. are the black rats. Um, Even though again, like the calico could be considered an intergrade because of where it originated from, which is just about an hour and a half from where I live. It originated over in um, Kentucky. And even over there, that's a Midland, you know, rat snake Mm -hmm. called now. So uh, some people can argue that the calico would, fall under a gray, you know, morph, not just a solid black morph. I, I disagree with with that statement. And at this yeah. point, we just kind of have to accept it as it's a black rat snake morph. It's almost like you hear the term hobby Honduran because there's no true mm-hmm. Honduran milk snakes in the hobby. Yeah, but okay. <laughs> you know, we, we have to move from that because mm-hmm. this is what the hobby considers Hondurans at this point, you know, and and it's moved yep. to that. But yeah, so that the het leucistics, those I, I just, I wanted to move away from because I didn't feel comfortable saying that that's what they were because I didn't, their you know, I just didn't know it. for sure. Gotcha. Um, and Brindles, as a, that's another morph of Black Rat Snake, and it's an obvious morph. When you combine it with other things, it may not be as much, but it in and itself is another unique pattern and color mutation. At the same time um, that as i mentioned has kind of disappeared throughout the hobby and we've got uh, you know we work with it we actually just produce some some hits uh, that we'll be holding several back to be able to expand on that morph and try to get it repopulated in the hobby really um, that's one i get asked for quite a bit um I, i'm pretty sure i would say a lemon would be a gray rat snake morph, not black rat snake morph. Although it gets dumped into to that pretty commonly, uh, but that would be something that would we will probably keep separate. So that if for those that feel that yes, that's hundred percent a gray rat snake morph, okay, I'll I'll agree with you there, and we won't be mixing that. You know, we we'll like to keep that separate. Man, am I forgetting any? I'm trying to like I'm I'm going through racks in my head right now <laughs> to see uh, the, <laughs> the opening drawers. What's in that one? What's in that one? Kind of thing. Um,
1: you uh, mentioned already the white sides, I believe. Yes, yeah, yep,
0: yeah. That's sides. really the only one that I was familiar with before today. And I've seen. Um, and I don't know if this is just a colloquial term for a morph you've already thrown out there, but moonshine rat.
2: Uh, the moonshine is like actually a. Um, uh, and I believe it's a T positive, which act, the lightning might be a T positive, in the black rat snakes as well. If if not a, a form of hypo, uh, and the chocolates could be T positive. But I digress. I, I apologize. The moonshines are a locality um, specific morph of a of the natural occurring intergrade between the black and yellow rat snake uh, out of Horry County, yeah. South Carolina, and so it's the commonly called the greenish rat snake is what that integrated yeah. is called. Um, yeah, it's at that the moonshine is a locality specific. And I certainly I hope anyone, that. if you're hearing this, if you work with moonshines, keep it locality specific. Don't mix that into black rats because then we've got yellow rat mixed into to these other mm-hmm. mutations and that just muddies the water. You might as well call it a bubble gum because that's, that's the, the generic term that has kind of been put on any of the, the rat snakes that have been mixed and matched and all this for um, with different color mutations across grays, blacks, yellows, Everglades, all those that's just labeled bubblegums. So um, yes, so I, I work with Moonshines as well. It is a beautiful morph. I, I yeah. mean, they are stunning um, and it's, it's neat that, you know, that comes from, you know, a natural intergrade area, so. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah it's cool. got black rat in it but i wouldn't say is a complete black rat morph.
0: <laughs> so if we were to jump a little bit into care of black rat snakes uh and i've kept black rat snakes here in west virginia like you said that's you know it, it's kind of funny because they're common but like after may uh you'll see one crossing a road maybe once every three months, unless you go out and start flipping 10, like you're, it's your job. Um, but you know, so we all have kept them, but it, do you notice there being any kind of difference in husbandry between the rat snakes versus, you know, corn snakes? Cause everybody talks about how corn snakes are kind of the classic beginner, um, glubrid. And obviously black rats get, significantly larger than than corns and come out of the egg bigger than a corn Mm -hmm. but is the care the same is it different
2: you know are there any little nuggets i was going to say that in my opinion black rat snake care is corn snake care but a little bigger you know a little bit bigger (laughs) because they are so incredibly similar um i would i would venture to say you have a, a lower percentage of babies that refuse to feed right off the bat. Okay. Um, we, I just realized I didn't plug in my laptop, gentlemen, and so we better do that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Pause. <So, That> was- <laughs> yeah. uh, one second, everyone. I apologize for this technical delay here
1: all i'm thinking about is when clint's talking about crossing some of these adults i'm like well now i just opened up another tub at my house since some of those are raise-ups that are at my house and then i'm just wondering what clint's going to fill it with with a hold back uh-huh, absolutely
2: <laughs> you know we i think as matt and i well before i go back into that um so the overall care i think one advantage too that uh, you know we talk about beginner species that a black rat has is being that it is so common throughout the U.S. that just our natural humidity in most areas, yep. the, the natural light cycles, I mean, every the natural temperatures that we we have is usually pretty conducive to keep them happy and healthy. Um, so I, mm-hmm. I think, that you know, same thing as long as they are, are ventilated, um, they don't need extreme humidity, but they will have a shed problem if they don't have an area to to get humid when they need it. Um, They're easy. They're very easy. Give them a warm side of around 80, cool side of around room temperature, and those things will thrive. I mean, they absolutely will. And I think that they, being that they they do get larger, but they get size on them a little bit quicker than corn snakes, probably make them an even better beginner species for someone young. Because in my opinion, a little bit of weight, girth, and size on a snake it's better for someone who isn't as familiar with handling. They're less likely to hurt people. Um, So, and they calm down just as easily as if anything, I mean, a lot of times baby corn snakes seem to be a little bit more nippy than what a baby black rat snake does, um, you know, for me. Um,
0: And if they, they put on size, they also become uh, less of a security risk of finding a one millimeter hole and then, you think, Oh, that, that thing can't get out of there. And boom, gone. Mm-hmm. I've actually had that happen here in the past month. I had a clutch of Swinsky. I Swinsky's rat snakes, which used to be, you know, they're basically MRI, the same size as a corn snake. And I had them in a Rubbermaid locking tub in my office. And, uh, you know, the, the guy down the hallway is like yo one of your friends is down here and like, like come down and like how the hell did that get out of there and then someone found one in a garbage can someone <laughs> found one like in the stairwell it's like i don't understand these are the these are literally the tubs we put the babies in like because they don't escape and that's basically uh, size-wise the same thing as a corn snake so anything that's going to get bigger than that little worm faster you're going to be able to maintain it and
2: yeah you know absolutely. lose that
0: risk of it escaping so you know, and
2: i would say to anybody that's looking at black rats that wants to have a very natural looking setup you know um, mm-hmm. if you set up something arboreal for a black rat snake it's going to use every bit of it it's that's I mean, pretty, they're, bad they're pretty neat display animals because they do have that size they're fairly active and they will use every bit of a cage so. You know,
1: Clint, uh, going back to even your comment about how they're so widespread throughout the United States, I think that's actually part of the reason why sometimes we're not able to produce some of these different colubrids in captivity. You're going to see different success rates throughout different geographical areas just based upon natural causes like barometric pressure or humidity, um, light cycles. So I, I think in terms of even talking about black rat snakes, they're, uh, I wouldn't say this very openly, but I would say they're more forgiving to oh, as yeah, well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh,
2: yeah, you can screw up a lot and they still live. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, whenever you can cut your teeth on wild-caught animals, you know, as a kid, and I, I mean especially back then we didn't have the internet we didn't have all this to no. be able to research and learn and i mean honestly i i should have killed a lot of black rat snakes you know thinking back on <laughs> uh, on that back then but they never did you know that they were hardy and you know like right now like i said earlier with the volante i do all the research possible i ask all the questions i can and, and i'm still not having luck but the black rats yeah they just i mean their garbage disposals they you know eat anything you throw at them and they just keep on ticking they they're strong species they're hardy you know there's even a joke it's because we talked about how widespread they are uh, i think all of us that deal with snakes we inevitably when snake season comes around we're getting tagged constantly on social media what is this what is this yep. what is this Right. And I had a, another friend because I, again, I'm tagged all the time on it. And the answer, I think only twice have I ever answered anything other than black rat snake, harmless, yeah. black rat snake, harmless. And so I had a friend uh, comment once, do you ever get tired of saying black rat snake? Cause he sees all these, I get tagged <laughs> in. And I said, you know what? The funny thing is my phone auto populates it. If I say <laughs> PL, I, I just, tap, 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 black rat, snake, (laughs) you know, boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Because I've tapped it so many times, you know, as an explanation, Mm -hmm. it's so common. Um, you know, and this is again, going to be one of those kind of tangent things, but I find it uh, an interesting thought. We talked earlier about the, the variance and the natural occurring Mm -hmm. variance in this animal, you know, and I I say that because the thought of them being spread all over the country and, and all that has, Yep. sometimes I. I wonder how many more morphs there are that we don't realize. I mean, when you think about ball pythons, that can't be the only species that has 9,000 base morphs, right? You know, every little piece is, is something different. And I do think that while this species has a huge variance in just the way it naturally looks, I believe there's more genetic mutations that we just don't realize that that's what it is sometimes we chalk it up to natural variants from one spot yeah. to another unless it significantly stands out um you know like Let's i said we go from a jet black animal to you know some of what we have in our collection that is a multi head animal literally brown saddles on gray background as adults um but there's more there it's, I just think that yeah, if you it, it, there's not been enough financial incentive for people mm-hmm. to go out there and figure it out truthfully.
0: One of the interesting things is if you, on that line of thought is when you talk about a population that has a lot of different colorations from a biological point of view, we, we refer to that as phenotypic plasticity. And yeah, all the kind of stalwarts for the old taxonomy and all the different subspecies, uh, that were subsequently in the early 2000s eliminated by um, the Berbering paper. Uh, what, what you don't realize is what the Berbering paper is saying is exactly what you just said, which is basically that the fact that the yellow rat snake and the gray rat snake and a black rat snake all share similar genetics shows you that this population if you identify them as a genetic species, which is what you're doing if you honor that newer system, is that it's naturally built into the, to the animal to basically express phenotypes that are responsive to the environments that they're in. And so, you know, while I, I understand the people that are, are totally on board for maintaining like Rosalini, the Everglades rat snake, and, and get all upset, and trust me, I was upset when I read that paper way back when, you know, if you're looking at this from a perspective of I want to create different phenotypes and things like that, what the, gene flow in the species shows based off that paper is that these this species is basically one continuous population with localized geographic variants which is exactly what the origins for these morphs are it's just a stronger form of you know it's legitimate albinism and and things like that but to take a black rat snake and make it a yellow rat snake you are decreasing melanin Mm -hmm. so that whole process is going on and you are expressing um uh, Xander-based, yellow-based pigments and, and, and things of that nature. Um, I said we weren't going to talk about this, but we, we have to just <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> so the the big issue scientifically with that paper that came out that basically came up with these three species that a lot of people have is when you read the paper, it was the actual collecting. It was the fieldwork that was done to get the genetics to represent these different populations to then carve it up was kind of spotty and localized. And some of the geographic features of North America that were used to differentiate the taxa just do not really hold water. Um, I mean, it was literally water in one case, there's this argument that like rivers, uh, like I think the Mississippi River was an important barrier to gene flow. And I personally have been in the middle of Lake Jordan in North Carolina with my uncle back when I was 10. here comes a black rat snake right across Mm -hmm. the middle of the lake so you know that's not really gonna stop it but anyway that's just a fun little bit of biology that you can kind of throw into that mix um so yes you're you're almost you're 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 certainly uh correct and if you look at like the north american field herping forums or even just statewide snake groups on social media where you get the general public involved and they'll post up a picture like what's this pink snake uh, I, I don't know what group it was, but there was definitely a pink black rat snake posted up in one of those group, groups this year. And, you know, Lord knows what would have happened if that would have gotten into the hands of a herpetoculturist. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So along that same line of care, if we were to jump into breeding, um, what, when you're dealing with these different uh, morphs and the origins of them, if you have a morph that originated in Arkansas... And you have a morph that originated in northern or central Ohio. Climactically, like those two areas are going to receive different winter seasons, different fall Mm -hmm. seasons. Um, When it comes to actually doing the whole rinse, recycle, repeat to colubrid breeding, especially North American colubrids where you basically begin to cool them in the fall, then drop them down to a certain temperature and then warm them back up in the spring to initiate that uh, reproductive aspect of their biology do you have to do that with these animals or do do they can you food cycle them like what is your actual process for producing a black rat snake
2: i don't want to say that you have to i will say that i do you know that that would be the the best way for me to answer that um you know it goes back to to my belief that there are always several different ways to be successful you know when taking care of, of an animal of any type um, so I always premise it by saying, this is how I do it. And I don't mean that mm-hmm. as a, I do it right. I'm saying this is what I do. And this is the particular level of success I've had by doing it this way. If that makes sense. Um, yep. with black rats, what I've found is really regardless of where they have originated, um, usually within a year, they will have acclimated to where they're at, you know, now. Okay. Um, so you know, if I was to get, let's say, a, a male that I want to breed. In fact, I will say, um, and I'm going to use this example with a Texas rat because it happened to be that, but falls in the same lines really on care and, and cycling. Um, I got a, a adult leucistic Texas rat male um, at the end of of a cycle, uh, well, going into a winter, um, and so he hadn't been with mm-hmm. me long, long enough where you know he was healthy, a few meals in him, all that, and then. Went ahead and cycled him. didn't produce or actually very poorly um got bad eggs from multiple females that he yep. was put to um that season he went through the entire season with me um went through the next cycling through the winter this year i've got like how many i tell you matt leucistic eggs you know something yeah. like that <laughs> um so i think you know it's I, they they would normally get into the the cycle of whatever season not i'm sorry not whatever season but every whatever region that they're now in uh usually within a year because they if they weren't as adaptive as they are they wouldn't be as prevalent yeah. across the entire us you know as they are so it, it's a very easy species to cycle i will say i have found that um with a lot of colubrids and maybe this has changed since, since I was a kid and hearing it, but they say two years, you know, at two years old, they can usually start breeding, um, with black rats. That's probably true, but most don't, (laughs) in my opinion. Um, instead it's that three year mark before they really want to, and that male or female, you know, they can certainly go younger. I've had some of them do it, but it's usually about three years before I'm getting action at all. Um, from them, and in fact, um, this year I've experienced the same thing with the moonshines. Uh, moonshines tend to Ugh. get bigger faster than black rats. Um, I don't know if it's just some of that you know the, the vigor of, of having the, the cross there, but the the babies grow a little faster, and my adults are bigger. They're some of the biggest you know uh, rat snakes I've got, and but uh, same thing they're at two years old. They're as big as some of the three-year-old, uh, black rats, yeah, That's cool. but they didn't go for me this year, you know, some of the holdbacks. And so I'm thinking, okay, they're probably same thing that they do much better at year three, you know, for breeding. So anyone who's looking at breeding them, I would probably just go ahead and wait until your third year before I'd even attempt it. Uh, cause even if you get eggs in year two, it's probably not going to be anything really worth, uh, you know, worth putting that female through that cycle yet. Uh, so, uh, year three, even year four is when they really start to do well. Um, this year in particular, I mean, like, uh, our white sides, I think we've had something like 76 white side, black rat snake eggs. Uh, I mean, just <laughs> cranking, cranking, cranking. Um, but that's typical. The, I do the same thing and maybe I do it just because it's how we were told when we were young. I typically try to wait until they shed. The female has her first shed yeah. uh, post brumation. And then I put them together. Sometimes I'll put them together before, just because I'm curious to see what happens. Cause with Asians, they'll breed like that, you know, at certain ones, yes. um, hell, I have not even warmed them up yet, you know, and um, at all. And, put them together and they'll, they'll start locking up. Uh, but I don't really see it out of the North American. I think that a lot of that information we got when we were young was probably based off of North American species, the whole wait for that first shed then pair, um, that recipe seems to work very well with them. Um, but I've seen that there's sometimes a female will come out of rumation and she won't shed for a while. Um, it's not as common, but I mean, we're talking, if I'm going on oh, yeah. week seven, week eight, you know, and she still hasn't shed yet, I go ahead and start pairing her because she may be ovulating or, you know, or starting that cycle and just for some reason hasn't shed. Um, and we've had success with that as well. Um, I will also there, say there that, is a, um, go, go ahead, go, go ahead. Uh, I also oh, no. go think for that it, go typically on. you have a, um, There are other species you can see visual locks, but then not produce. I have not experienced that with black rats. If they lock, you're probably going to get eggs. Um, eggs. It's, it's almost a guaranteed kind of thing. Whether or not they're good, eh, you'll see. But, uh, (laughs) if they lock, yeah, she's, she's probably going to lay. Yeah. With,
0: um, most North American true colubrids, that's the rat snakes, milk snakes, pits, um, that, that, Post-brumation shed is actually associated with the release of pheromones that basically tells the boys, yo, um, I'm ready. Uh, We had a corn snake here last year, not this year, but last year, and she came out of brumation and we basically put a male with her because we needed eggs for a project. And the male didn't really show much interest. She was out of brumation nine weeks before she shed, and she was shedding and he was trying to lock with her. Like he, the shed wasn't even off her body yeah. yet, but up until that point, um it was really no interest. And that's because there's a the, the pheromone right um release and all that kind of good stuff because there's uh some aspects of the production of eggs that are associated with mm-hmm. that that rumination shed. So yeah.
1: I think at one point weren't they even considering that part of the trailing behavior? Yes. Of brute yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's some cool snake biology for everybody. So we've talked about babies. We've talked about your process of brumation. We've talked about the morphs. We've talked about care. Uh, Final question just has to deal with eggs. Um, I mean, obviously these things live where most of the people listening live, at least if you're in the Eastern part of the country. Uh, I I remember, I, I don't know if it was the first clutch of eggs. I think it was the second clutch of eggs I incubated personally way back when, I caught a gravid rat snake and kept her till she dropped him. All I did was literally put them in a, I think it was a pickle jar. And this this is very primitive. Put some sphagnum moss in there and put them in my parents' garage. And that was the that was my brumation or sorry, my incubation strategy, and every single egg freaking hatched. Yeah. Um yeah. Is that, is that true? Or, or do some of these morphs have like is there deleterious gene pairings? You don't breed this with that because you're not going to get, you know, progeny from it. Can we talk just a little, I know there's more facets there than just one, but maybe yeah, we can just with, cover that and then we can.
2: With black rat snakes, nothing I've experienced like that so far, you know, okay. it's, but I think that a lot, you don't see as many black rat snake combos as you would think with as long as, you know, all these mutations have been out there. So you know, that may be something we come across as we continue to to mix and match and see what happens. Um, to go into the, the question on incubation, I, first, I'll back up one step uh, just for those who are listening, you know, wanting to do this. When it cycling, um, I typically will drop my temperatures over about a two week period. Uh, let me, I stop feeding completely, let them get about two weeks to flush out. Then over a two-week period, mm-hmm. I start dropping my temperatures from a warm spot of about 80, getting down to eventually, I, I try to target 55 to 58 degrees. Um, yeah. And for those listening, if you don't get them that low and they're a little higher, like the 63 to 65, that to me, that's more dangerous than keeping them up or getting them all the way yeah. down <clears throat> because it's almost like they their immune systems aren't, completely shut down. You know, they're not shut down, but their immune systems are weakened. So you're more likely to get sick animals. Um, So you really want to try to target that kind of 55, 58 degrees range, uh, degree range. Uh, Keep them there for as little as eight weeks, but it depends on how much vacation I want from all the snakes (laughs) sometimes.
0: Yep. (laughs) I hear you. They've done that.
2: Yeah. So that might stretch, you know, a little more, but at least an eight week minimum, it just sometimes I'm chomping at the bit to get them warmed up and start, you know, fooling around with them again. Sometimes I'm like, I'm not ready for this yet. Um, So Mm -hmm. I'd say eight, no more than 12, really. That's, that's going to be plenty. Um, I warm up over the course of a week. It doesn't really seem to phase anything. uh, So I'll bump it up to, 65 on day one about day three or four i'll bump it up to to 70 you know 74 and then eventually i'll get their warm side up to 80 by the end of the week um and then i'll give them i at that point just watch their behavior if they're not really yeah. active i don't try to feed them right off the bat but usually by week two they're ready you know they're they're um, mm-hmm. they're going back at it. So just wanted to give some of those temperature and, and timing. No, that's great. For those that, um, are interested then, uh, after breeding the, you know, I, I kind of watch her and once she goes through that shed, that prelay shed, you know, you've got about 10 days, you know, and sometimes it's okay. like clockwork with them, uh, 10 days and they drop, uh, I'd say anywhere between seven to 10, but usually it's about 10 days and they're going to love them. Uh, drop them off for you. And then, you know, this for some, I think is controversial, but if you have a very well fed animal, in my experience, they will double clutch whether you want them to or not. And meaning even if you don't put them, put a female with a male, so often I would get a second clutch and I would get a higher number of infertile eggs. And I think it's because she wasn't paired, and so I finally come to the conclusion that if a female is is heavy bodied and extremely healthy, I go ahead and I partner her within about a week of her laying the, that first clutch, because if she's going to put her body through that second cycle. I at least try to attempt to make as many of the eggs viable as possible. So she's not putting herself through that strenuous activity um, without there really being fruit of her labor, you know, so to speak. Um, Now, with that in mind, when a female lays, you know, I'll, I'll pull the eggs to incubate and I attempt to feed her within 24 hours of her laying. If she doesn't want it, no problem. But most of the time they take it right off the bat, they're ready to eat. They're ready to start replenishing themselves. Um, and if, again, if they're completely de- deflated, that's not a female that goes, you know, and that's put into a second clutch cycle. Um, but a lot of the times they're, you know, if they go into it healthy enough, they come out of it healthy enough, you know, to, to run that second time. Um, eggs, I, I incubate a lot fancier now than what I used to, and than what's needed. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that really with a damp paper towel and you know putting them in a container and keeping them around eighty, you're going to hatch black rat snakes. You know, they're they're not hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I use a either ver, uh, vermiculite or perlite, uh, kind of that 50-50 mix. I probably go a little bit more than a little bit more than fifty percent water weight to 50% perlite. I like it just, just a hair more, or I feel like it's going to dry out over time. Um, now, as far as the temperature that I, I incubate at, it's usually about 79, 80 degrees. And that's obviously because I'm using an incubator. But I like to point out to everyone that it is incubating snakes, uh, snake eggs of really, I don't want to say any type, but most types. Nature does not set itself at 80 degrees, doesn't work. that. There is natural fluctuations that occur. Um, So as long as you don't have some malfunction that spikes you to, you know, 110 degrees or drops you to 60 degrees for an extended period of time, things are probably going to be just fine. Um, It's if it's a little bit lower than that 80 degrees, they're just going to take longer to incubate a little bit higher. They're going to hatch sooner. Now, you may end up with deformities if you start, if you incubate black rats at a straight 90 degrees, my guess is some of them are going to come out just fine, but you may have experienced more kinks, things like that, or dead egg, you know, that type of thing, just because they're Mm -hmm. typically incubated in the 80 degree mark. Um, And I would say they hatch somewhere between 55 to 65 degrees, 55 to 65 days out from lay. Again, depending on some of those temperature we, variables. Well,
0: well, I mean, anybody that wants to do this now, they have what they need to know.
2: That's, That's right. Awesome. And if <laughs> they want some stock, I know, know a place they can get them. So. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, you might want to go to Bartley Reptiles. Um, <laughs> cheap plug. Anyway, so getting babies started. We, we talked about this a little. Um, I've... I mean, that little clutch way back when I was in college, they took pinkies like uh, they were sassy little boogers. And I just basically got them to do that, you know, S strike thing they do. And then they strike the pinky, let go, and they gobbled. What What's do you do that? Other I, I kind of have a,
2: a series of steps that i take, taken. And really, this will be true for, for most of the snakes that I, I produce. The first is just throwing a frozen thaw in the container yeah. that they're in. You know, uh, because I kind of do a cycle with this and feeding takes a, a, it's about a six hour process throughout a day. Whenever, you know, I've got a bunch of babies and it's just because of the method really. Uh, So first I'll I'll put a frozen thawed. Then I come back through and Anything that didn't eat frozen thawed, I take those out and I shuffle those to the ones I haven't tried to feed yet that day. And that way I'm not wasting a bunch of my frozen pinkies. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But frozen thawed in their cage first. If that doesn't work, it's followed by live. If, uh, and I, I do that cycle for a few weeks and normally that gets most Mm -hmm. everything eating for the ones that are wanting to play stubborn at that point. My next step is just a deli cup, moving them from whatever tub that they're in to a deli cup and trying the same thing, frozen thawed trying live. And you'll get a certain percentage that that kicks them into gear. If that doesn't work, uh, the next trick is boiled. I boil a pinky for about hey. 30 seconds. And it's amazing how many that kickstarts for some reason. Um, and I think that's because possibly just the smell of the mouse urine on the pinky uh, maybe causes some fear, you know, because an adult rodent could really wreak havoc on mm-hmm. a baby snake. Um, maybe I read that somewhere and that's why I think it. I don't know. But. Um, the boiled pink trick seems to work a lot. And for those who want to try it, um, I simply bring a, a pot to boil. However many pinkies you're going to use, drop them in for 30 seconds, no longer than 30 seconds. Um, pull them out, put them in deli cups and then, and give them about an hour. If they've not eaten it within an hour, they're not going to. Um, occasionally I'll try the braining technique um, which is basically cutting a slit in the pinky's skull, exposing the brain that smell for some reason will kick some of them in. And another trick that I'm actually going to attempt to utilize again this week that I've just haven't for a long time. And this is just on a handful that are being stubborn. And by handful, I'm meaning we've produced somewhere around 300 black rat snakes this year. So, you know, we may have like 15 (laughs) of them that aren't eating. Um, so I'm going to do chicken broth, uh, just dipping a, a pinky and I'll try mm-hmm. both frozen thawed, and then I'll try alive, you know, as well. Uh, but that's another trick that seems to work here and there. Um, at that point, if you've tried all of that and it doesn't work, you can either assist feed or that animal is just not meant to survive. <laughs> to know, there's, there's going yep. to be some of those that just, it's not going to happen. Um, unfortunately it's not, not many, but it does occur. Um, and, and I, I don't.
0: I don't think enough people realize that everything in a clutch doesn't really need to live.
2: That's why uh, you have are to actually eat, right.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, if <laughs> if you go to great lengths to get that super stubborn feeder to eat, and then it breeds, there could literally be a genetic basis behind it not wanting to eat. And now you're going to have potentially an entire clutch of critters that have a genetic predisposition to. I don't like food, which seems like the most bizarre thing to have a genetic predisposition to, but it, it happens. You don't know that gene might be controlling some enzyme that isn't produced that doesn't trigger a feeding response or may have elevated levels of cortisol in them associated with, you don't know what the hell's going on. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm dealing with that right now. Um, with, with a couple banded water snake litters that I have, it's really funny. I've got these giant beasts that have been that like sucked down the tilapia, like it's their job. And there's these withered husks in there. And I've gone to, to do something controversial, call them. And then I can't. <laughs> so.
2: Yeah, it, 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 and Like I try to anyway. explain to others. I mean, that's why there are that many eggs in a clutch. That's why exactly. these have so many babies. That's they're not in the wild. They wouldn't all survive. And not just because of predators. Some of them would just yep. be too stupid to live. You know what I mean? Yes. It's, it's, yep. <laughs> um, that's amazing. But, but yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's just going to be the nature of it. So. Cool. No,
1: it's hard, too, especially when you're feeding large numbers of babies. Um, you know, Clint, I, I think maybe go into how you set up your baby tubs, mm-hmm. maybe in terms, just so people aren't thinking you have, a thousand six quart <laughs> tubs through your basement, uh, or snake room. But I, I think that might give it a better picture to just in terms of like how you said, you know, you'll take a frozen thawed pink and put it inside of the enclosure with the animal and things like yeah, that.
2: If I'm feeding like a, cause I mean, my babies are in, in rack systems. Um, because the last thing I want to do is pop open delis, you know, for hundreds of animals, you know, during feeding, if I can avoid that. <laughs> so, they are in, um, in rack systems in tubs. And if I'm feeding, let's say 150 babies, um, I will typically, I would probably thaw out maybe 90 to hundred pinkies is where I would start. And so the first, I'd go down my, my rows and I would mark where the last one was you know, with I, everything has an ID card, okay. an index card. So I know exactly, you know, they have their ID number, uh, what they are, what heads they have, you know, whatever. And depending on it have got a whole little way I do it. So it's, if the card straight, then there's nothing in there, meaning there's no food item. Um, if it's turned sideways, just one at the end, that means that's where I stopped with frozen thawed. So I would do that. And I would give them about 45 minutes. Um, and then I would come back down and one by one, I would check each tub. If they've eaten, mark it down, put the card back. If they've not eaten, I take the frozen thought out. I put a live in and turn their card sideways. And that tells me there's something in there, you know, reminds me there, there's a food (laughs) item in there. Go back and check that one. Right. And so I would go all the way through those first. So in first 90 to a hundred and most of them would have eaten, but there's always going to be that big set that they only want live. You know, they're not interested in frozen thaw. Um, and I don't really tease feed frozen thaw because there's too many mouths for me to do that yep. with, with the pinkies, you know, with the babies. Um, so I'll throw that live in. I move the frozen thaw that weren't eaten to the next, you know, group of maybe 30 cause maybe I only have 30 pinkies you know, thawed at that point. And I repeat that cycle all the way through. And that's why it it takes a few hours throughout the day. Um, I, I do it on a weekend and I'll, you know, I'll go do something else for a little bit, come back and I just keep cycling those, um, all the way through each of the multiple racks of babies, uh, that we have. And sometimes if it flows over to the next day to where like, okay, you fed everything, but there's 20 babies that haven't eaten yet because you didn't have enough pinkies thawed out or bring in enough live. Um, because again, with the size of the collection, I really try to eliminate as much waste as possible. The last thing I want to do is throw away twenty pinkies. You know, that I needed them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then on a, on Sunday, the following day, I may only have twenty babies to feed, which is, is nothing. It takes no time. Uh, but that's usually the day that. I'm dealing with the jerks that won't eat either, you know, I'm going to try the extra steps and that kind of thing. So, Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's a process, but it's really, I think for anyone, the best thing you can do for yourself is find your process, what works for you. Um, because if anybody else went down there, they'd have, I don't even know if they'd realize the, the index cards being moved a certain way, told me something, uh, because it doesn't just tell me that it also tells me, Um, let's say that I've pulled frozen thawed out of one and this is, it's irrelevant for you guys, but just so you know, give you a chuckle. So upright slid in vertical, everything's good. If it's turned horizontal and is upright, meaning the side I write on is facing up. That means there's food in there. If it is upside down. So the side I write on is face down and is vertical. That means it refused frozen thawed, but I didn't have enough live pinkies, you know, uh, to put one Give in, it a go. So as something doesn't eat live, I cycle through and I move them. Um, and then eventually, and also if it is upside down, but horizontal, that tells me it has now taken enough meals that I need to take a picture of it and post it for sale. So I just did all that in one That's cycle. Amazing. And so it just keeps on moving because otherwise you're, you're having to go back through everything and, you know, it's market, save time, move along. Uh, you have to find those little tricks when dealing with a collection, the size we are, cause I mean, currently there are over 300 breeders that I'm working with (laughs) and, uh, right now, just at this moment, there's probably upwards of 300 babies, I, I think, uh, we'll produce a total of probably 500. When it's all said and done, by the end of the season, so Dear Lord, I have to, and I work full time, so you know, I'm yeah. on the road. Many <laughs> in, so I have to, you know, I keep. Uh, I, there's a few guys that uh, come over and work for me, and they will clean cages while I'm out of town. So I, when I say I work for a living and I travel, I don't want anyone to think that the, the animals aren't being killed. Yeah. Well, they certainly are. But when it comes to feeding and all that, that's on me. So that's uh, that's how my Saturdays are spent. So keep uh, keep good processes in place, and it can make it go a whole lot smoother for you.
1: I'm just thinking, next time I go there, I'm just going to screw around with those note cards. Oh
2: my god, <laughs> you move the cards? Just doing... <laughs> I'm just thinking there's going to be a whole lot more snakes. I'm sending to mat to take care of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: No, I I didn't know that um, tidbit, Clint, to be honest about.
2: Yeah, it's, you know, well, with what I do for a living, too, uh, there's certain things that are just very process-oriented and finding the best processes make you more efficient, save you more time. And so there's no way I could really operate with a collection that size and not come up with those little tidbits and tricks of moving things along. So
0: I I love learning about people's little systems like that I, I like um i went to the chair Cowan desert museum bob ashley's place and for a conference and he has a huge reptile rattlesnake collection a decent sized rattlesnake collection and he has a guy that he pays to take care of him and um he was he was pushing around this rubbermaid cart and this cart you could just tell that he had come up with a system for where everything was on that cart that took him like 25 years or 30 years to perfect. Uh, and I talked to him about like, well, how did you come up with this and why is everything where it is? Cause I just love hearing people's various little, you know, idiosyncratic ways of dealing with the sheer volume number and then keeping track of all this, this stuff. So that's pretty badass that you shared that with everybody. I like
2: that. No problem. Happy to.
0: Okay. Well, we can quickly move on to Asians if that's cool. We don't have like tons of time uh, left, but we you know, maybe we can do this in a more detail in a future episode. But let's just talk a little bit about Asians that you keep. So you'd mentioned the green bush rats, and you mm-hmm. obviously have the um, porphyracia uh, and the carinata. Are there any other taxa that you're?
2: Oh, Let's see, um, bella chaponesis So the chapa rat snakes, bella rat snakes. Keep um, those mandarins. Starting to uh, expand further than that. Keep um, some of the Xantics. i uh, got those and I, I love them. I think that's a, just a beautiful morph of, a, uh, of an Asian species. Uh, Taiwan beauties. Gotten into okay. uh, really a lot of the beauties now. That's I would say that would be a side of Asians that I'm, I'm expanding into and, and really wanting to learn a lot more on. Um, Taiwan's blue beauties and Chinese beauties. You know, right now I've got a pretty decent size, uh, order of, of Chinese beauty morphs coming uh, a little bit later this year and looking forward to learning them really, because I think that that's another, another species that is kind of mixed, mixed around when it comes to morphs that we don't quite have a handle on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I want to dabble in that and see what else I can figure out. Uh, also I work with Koreans. Um, those are about as fast a snake as you can find, but they—they're pretty. They're normal. <laughs> yeah. So, mm-hmm. um,
0: so let, let's talk about Koreans real quick, sure. because I tried for the longest time during my Asian phase to just get a flipping. In fact, I think I messaged you. Now that I'm thinking about it. Just a normal Korean rat snake. Yep. No morph. No uh, nothing. Just a normal. And I will leave, I won't name names, but I, I bought one off of Morph Market. And uh, the guy sent me it, and it was the most perfect Russian rat snake I've ever seen.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then I got in an argument, was like, this is not a Korean. And then I ultimately did get my money back. But, uh, where, do you know where you can find those? Because that is definitely... Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I know there's an albino, I believe. Uh-huh. I'm talking about normal.
2: Yeah, yeah. Or
0: hats even. Yeah, God,
2: you Matt. can find a pair of them in my basement. doesn't matter. Oh, how okay. All right, well, you right. <laughs> we'll produce them. Yeah, I've got a, a pair of normals um, and I've got a trio of albinos. Um, and uh-huh. i would had adults. Uh, these are all... The normals sh- will probably be able to go next year the albinos, I'll probably give them another year. I just held back some babies and working with them. Um, but I agree. The normals were not easy to find. Um, I forget exactly where I got them, but I believe I've, we found them on a wholesale list. Um, and they, they turned out they are Koreans, you know, I'm, I'm at least they look like it so far, you know?
0: Um,
2: <laughs> gotcha. um so, you know, pretty happy on, on that find. Um, because to your point, yeah, they are incredibly difficult to yes. sum up with.
0: Stuff. And to, to stay on the black rat point, they are the ecologically equivalent to our black rats in um, Asia. They're at the exact same long, or latitude as ours. So,
2: well, As a matter of fact, I was going to say, um, I've had great success with my Koreans keeping them like I keep my North Americans. I keep them a little bit warmer. Yeah, I don't need to keep the humidity You know, it's, you keep them like you do a North American rat snake and they produce and and do pretty well. They just, the warmer you get them, the more spastic they are. So, (laughs) so
0: I I always love to compare snakes that kind of fill a similar, fill a similar niche, but come from different places. So, and I've kept beauties before, um, Taiwan's and blues. And I know Matt has them as what all species do you have currently, Matt? Just, I know you have Chinese, right?
1: Chinese. Um, Ridley eye mm.
2: mm-hmm. forgot i got that too yeah
1: that, yeah That that's really it for the beauties at this point in time okay um space concerns,
0: space concerns. yeah they get big uh, yeah we're actually building an exhibit here at west liberty right now that's gonna house an eight foot monster taiwan beauty snake that's going through um quarantine in my garage uh but any differences in care that you've noticed i mean i noticed some but you're our guest so or as same as, deal as like the beauties, yes, um, from black rats or North American rats, whatever we want to call them.
2: Yeah, I mean, when it comes to like the the Asians and the beauties, I I would say that I'm still learning myself on them. <laughs> the way I currently have them housed is, I would say I have more humidity on them than what I have on the North Americans, um, but I wouldn't. I don't fully know if they need it. I I, I still go back to yeah. if as long as they have this humid hide, I think that suffices for a lot of their humidity needs. Um, but I also, I mean, keeping in mind that they are in a basement, you know, a basement <laughs> area. So it, it's mm-hmm. more humid down there than what you know, the general air condition is going to be, uh, throughout the rest of, of the house or even the area. Um, but it, I, at the same time, I'll say that, that it's not the most humid basement. We're running probably about 45% humidity uh, down there. So it's not Matt's place by any means. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I do have uh, you know, when I say I've got them a little more humid, I keep them on, um, Cypress mulch where I, I keep my North American okay. on Aspen. Um, and I do that really because the Aspen in my experience, is just easier to spot clean than what Cypress mulch is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I use it where I can. Uh, but the Asians right now, with the exception of the Koreans, I put them on Cypress. I'm sorry, I put them on Aspen and they're just fine. Um, the beauties, and it's funny that we, we're having this conversation on it because sometimes I just go off some pictures I see because it tells me how other keepers are keeping theirs. And so I, I've I've seen several that are keeping beauties on aspen, and I'm like, Bet bet it's okay. You know, I, I bet it's all right mm-hmm. if. You know just so long as again they're provided with a humid area if nothing else um and in fact the carinata i have now pulled off of cypress mulch to put back on aspen because i don't know if that's one of the things that are, are causing some of these to to not breathe um, and i'm noticing with a snake that that's that size um just some of the discoloration on the the belly a little yeah. bit, you know, maybe that they were getting too wet in some of these areas when they would, you know, move around and get it, uh, get the, the bedding spread out. So they're getting deeper in it to where it's, you know, in a, uh, cage that has cypress mulch, the most humid mulch is at the bottom. Cause that's where, you know, everything's went. And so I just little things like that, trying to figure out, um, and I know that the Carinata produced better when they were on Aspen. And I don't know if maybe the you know kind of the keeled scales that they have versus you know a lot of the others maybe they don't need as much humidity. Eh, It's me guessing, Mm -hmm. right? There's really not a a pamphlet on them yet, you know, that says this is the this is the winning recipe on yeah, so. um, But yeah, like I said, beauties are are something new to me. I don't think they're a difficult species to keep so far. Um, You know, I see several people with them. But I've this was my first year producing Chinese beauties. I uh, had a little surprise, you know, bred two that I thought were hypos together and got all green babies. So um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I to I think that I'm dealing with a, a T negative and T positive or a T negative and a, and a hypo is or even two different T negative strains. Um, but obviously there's two different strains I'm working with, with these particular animals. So, uh, lots to uncover and I'm looking forward to the day of, uh, having to, to fight a, a mean, you know, 12 foot blue beauty. We'll see how, how that goes, (laughs) (laughs) but right now the Ridley eye keep me on my toes. So (laughs)
0: yeah, Yeah, getting rid of my blue beauties was, um, hard. That was. Because i raised those puppies from little they were in a deli cup and my female when i my largest female was pushing nine eight and a half nine feet one of the things that i found absolutely fascinating about those animals is when you look at them and they're all coiled up in their enclosure there's your brain does not comprehend that that animal is eight i mean it's bigger it's longer than the false water cobras which when i look at those like i know those are big you know but but these guys it was just kind of cool how they are able to hide their overall length very effectively yeah it's pretty fascinating the
2: same thing with the ridley eye especially because they're they're, mm-hmm. they're skinnier snakes so you don't really yeah it's hard to see that and i mean like the Carinata, i've got some some big Carinata as well you know we're, we're probably talking pushing eight feet yep. and um they're such a heavy bodied snake you know yep. too with that that you see you've got a big snake there you know i, I remember mm-hmm. pulling out that tub uh i think it was brandon osborne who was over and when i pulled one of these tubs out with a uh, adult caranata female in it and it's uh, holy you know because it looks like you have to <laughs> i mean it's, it's bigger than a bull snake you know and that's you know that's a what you're kind of comparing a lot of that to. so uh yeah they and even then even those big ones you don't fully appreciate the length they've got on them until they're darting off away from you you know and you're yes. trying to catch yep. them and you know with some of these aggressives you're hooking them at the same time so you're not taking a thump from a snake that size if you mm-hmm. avoid it and um you also forget when it comes to something like a carinata how powerful those animals really are yeah. and fast and fast mm-hmm. you know so you're dealing with an aggressive strong big fast <laughs> animal they're not for beginners people you know, it's, it's, it's yeah. not a beginner species at all it sounds like Sounds like I
0: need to get a dozen of them because you just like <laughs> listed <laughs> off all it's my about favorite. How things. many I've got. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, cool. Yeah. Well, we're we're nearing the two hour mark. Um, and final question: uh, What what what's the future for Bartley Reptiles? Are there any colubrid groups that you haven't dabbled with that you'd like to give a go? Or are you happy with where you're at now? Or just kind of spitball on that for a little bit. So people know,
2: I am the kind of individual that is never content that, that it's difficult. Okay. It's always pushing forward, bigger expansion, you know, greater thoughts. It's um, that's just my nature. And I would mm-hmm. say that as far as Colubrids go, um, obviously beauties are the project I'm on right now. Like that's the, the addition, that's mm-hmm. the, the a segment that I'm growing the collection numbers in this year, uh, significantly, uh, going forward. I really don't mess with any of the pits mm-hmm. as of right now. Um, so, you know, gophers, bulls, I, I don't have any of those. And those may be on the horizon at some point. Um, I say that, however, there are so many Asian species out there that I, I don't work with now um, and not only are there are they out there and available but there's so many species that I think still need to be established in the hobby you know and that's a mm-hmm. that's conversations that Matt and I have you know regularly that whether established in the hobby or established in the United States hobby you know they're just not gotcha. here yet um, so I would say that would be the things to be on the lookout for from bartley reptiles in the future would be uh, additional asian species that you're not seeing yet um, for sure that that's every year we'll probably attempt to add at least one species to the docket you know on what we're working with which puts us about two or three years out from potentially producing them if we're lucky right Um, Mm -hmm. so and that will be again with uh, great help from matt here because of his phenomenal connections overseas, um, his, uh, incredible expertise, you know, on a lot of these Asian species to, to help get your hands on them and then hopefully keep them alive, you know, whenever you do have them. So. Yes. Um, so that would be it. I, I would say if anything pits and, and more and more Asian species coming down the pipeline. Okay. Pits are very dangerous. Very, very, very dangerous. I say pits because I have a difficult time saying the actual Latin names of all these pitters because it's it's the hillbilly. I do hard and it's hard enough to speak English. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Well, well, you're talking to a hillbilly because I.
0: I get it, but you're a very
2: educated hillbilly. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes, that's right. There's educated hillbilly that, that, that exists. Um, <laughs> yeah. for, for
1: those listening for pits that are interested in rat snakes you really should go down the ladder rat snake oh keeping God. skill because from my perspective that's the european pitch oh, just why p- did
0: you say that <laughs> <laughs> i gotta get them <laughs> okay man i've looked at those for years matt <laughs> Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> well, Very I mean, great. even just their
1: body shape, mm-hmm. everything. But their personalities represent 100%
0: pit
2: mm. the latitude. Very cool. cool. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: All righty. <laughs> well, on that note, we're at two hours. So thank you, Clint. This was freaking phenomenal. And, you know, you get the dubious honor of being our first guest so that's I, pretty I, awesome.
2: and it is an honor i hope you guys know that uh when you first message and, and ask i i mean as i said i think that was my response i would be honored uh because absolutely i think it's so exciting that uh the two of you are, are partnering up and doing this um it's obviously a segment of the hobby that is near and dear to me and mm-hmm. i think that it's it's near and dear to a lot of people and it's coming back with a vengeance. I mean, the yes. popularity of Colubrids as a whole is explode, uh, exploding again. And for there to be a resource like this to to come and learn, you know, from from those who are out there doing it. Uh, and it couldn't be coming from two better guys. So I'm excited to see where this goes. Oh. Thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate it.
0: Oh. Well, thank you for coming. Yeah, <laughs> yeah thanks, wonderful. Clay. Mm-hmm. So that's our second episode uh any final thoughts matt before we wrap this up
1: no um i'm really excited how this is continuing on and we've have a number of great guests lined up as zach and i have been conversing with those people and we're really if you want some specific animal or topic to be brought up in a future episode don't hesitate to contact Zach or myself as we are very open to Mm -hmm. this and we want everyone to have a platform for learning and what better source than to learn from our fellow keepers that have a positive aspect in this industry too as well.
0: Yes, absolutely. And soon if Matt and I's lives would just calm down a little bit, (laughs) (laughs) there, there will be, um, Facebook page, a Facebook page and an Instagram page and whatever other platform we need to make a page on for the podcast where you'll be able to go. Uh, So whenever that happens, it'll show up in uh, both of our respective social media outlets. uh, And obviously we'll be talking about it and, you know, we'll close this thing out. We are part of the NPR network and we're proud to be a part of that network. And thank you to uh, Eric once again, for giving us this opportunity. Uh, Check us, check it out. We got a website for NPR network. You can see all the other podcasts. I said last time I would be able to rattle them all off. I lied. I can't do that. We there's one on, obviously there's Marilia Python radio, the Australian herpetoculture, uh, podcast. There's, uh, reptile fight club, the most recent episode of that with Casey cannon. And, um, Lizard brain radio and drawing a blank. Cause it's late. Sorry very much for that. But, uh, about the Invisible arc. That was a phenomenal podcast. Go listen to that. Uh, Carpets and Coffee. And then all the other podcasts that they have that I didn't mention. And I'm sorry we didn't mention them. We'll mention them last time or next time. But with that, um, yeah, you know where to find us. Look us up on social media. Reach out. Uh, the people that have reached out, thank you. And the people that are, want to reach out, do it. We're, ta- we're asking you to, because that's the only way that we make sure that we produce what you want. So with that, Thank you for listening to the second episode of Calubrid and Colubroid Radio. Good night. Happy day. Whatever time it is. See ya.